Welcome to The Horse, a show hosted by longtime Yukoners Dan Bushnell and Jenny Hamilton. On this show, we talk to a diverse collection of people about living in the Yukon, what brought them here, why they stay or have left, but mostly, we like to talk about what truly makes them tick. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show coming to you from the Yukon's capital, Whitehorse, or as it's known to the locals, the horse. I'm Dan Bushnell. I'm Jenny Hamilton. And today we're speaking to the illustrious Dr. Matt Hearn. What we usually do on the show is we ask people how they got to the Yukon, what they're doing in the Yukon. Could you give us a little background on uh, what brought you up here? Yes. Uh, I live in East Vancouver, uh, and I've been coming to the Yukon now for as long as Sarah and Dan have been here, coming to visit. About four years ago, I started, I started teaching a community economic development course at the Yukon College. Um, it's a, an MBA program that's offered out of Cape Breton University, but has a cohort in, uh, in Whitehorse. And the cohorts are two years long. We did one cohort, I think starting in maybe in 2015, and I came up here to teach two courses. And then I was up here to, to teach another cohort, I believe last year in 2017. And two of the graduates from the first cohort wanted to go out and celebrate their graduation at the 98, um, which I did, of course, which was great. Um, and so we went out and had a, had a couple of beers. They started telling me about their new jobs because they graduated and they've got an MBA now and they end up in the uh, Yukon government apparatus. And one of them works in community service and the other one is the director of community services. Cool. And so then in their portfolio is the, are the towns of Farrow and Ross River by extension. And they started telling me the story of the Farrow Mine and a Farrow and a Ross River. And I got super intrigued. Um, I'd heard just kind of in the most vaguest sense about those towns, about the Farrow Mine. But honestly, I didn't really know anything about it at all. And when they started filling in the sum of the story, I was just super intrigued. I was like, this is a crazy story. Tell me this again. Tell me, tell me again what's happening. Like, what? Okay, start over again. Tell me, tell me this again. And they started telling me a story about the mine and about how the mine operated and how the mine closed down and how Farrow's a resource town that instead of being taken out back behind the, the barn and shot like most resource towns after the resource leaves town, that it's surviving. And it was once down to 80 people, but it's a town of, that was built for almost 3,000 people that it now has, loosely speaking, maybe 320 people around there uh, in town. But So that means that there's you know, more than two-thirds of the town is, is abandoned buildings. And they started telling me about the relationship to Pharaoh, uh, between Pharaoh and Ross River. And I got just, I was just like, okay, hang on for a second. Uh, I want to follow this up. And so I started getting more interested. And so this second cohort of students, we just, uh, in October, I took them out for, uh, for a full weekend out to Pharaoh, because uh, it's a community economic development course. We went out there and we met with uh, leadership. We hung out in town. We drank at the bar. We hung out with residents. We visited the mine. We went to Ross River, et cetera. And it was, it was super interesting, and, the, and the, the final paper of, for the cohort was to devise of a project for, for Farrell that might, have, that might have some relevance. And after that experience, I continued to get more interested in, in just the whole relationship. There's, there's so much, and so much of it is a microcosm of the, I would say, some of the fundamental schisms facing not just the Yukon, but facing Canada in general. 
uh, there is so much. There's it's such a such a rich and interconnected set of problematics that uh, I decided to follow it. So I followed my nose a little bit on it, uh, which is generally speaking that I got I got excited about the place and I got excited about the story, and I started reading everything I could about it. And there wasn't there isn't actually all that much written. So I just got back from I spent uh, two days out in Faro and Ross again. Actually, I didn't go to Ross this time because there was the there's a death in the community, and so my meetings out there got canceled. But I've been spending I spent a couple days in the MR library and a couple days uh, talking to people. Uh, Dan's introduced me to a couple people. I met a bunch of people from Ross, and I'm just really curious about the story. So I'm not sure what I'm doing, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Um, nor am I really sure what exactly I think about it all, except that it's a, it's a, to my mind, it's something that's continuing to intrigue me. And so that's kind of tends, it tends to be how I operate. I tend to follow my nose on projects that interest me, and this one interests me a lot. So that's why I've been here this week. How were the papers you got back when you asked people what? they thought they should do in Faro? Um, they're good. They're great. They're actually really good and really thoughtful papers. And, uh, and I think the, the, the weekend we spent out there was, sounds cliched, but eye-opening for all of us in a lot of ways. Have any of you guys been out there? Yes. Have you been out, you've been out to Faro? Not lately, but yeah. I've but been, yeah. at some point you've been out there? I lived in Faro as a child. My parents taught, my dad taught at school there. Oh, sweet. In the 70s, and I lived there for about two years. How do your, how do your folks talk about it? Um, they loved it. Yeah. It was their favorite community in Yukon. You said in the 70s? Yeah. So 75 to 77. Yeah. And then we moved to Alberta. Yeah. They So you would have been there right in the middle of the boomtown. Oh, totally. Yeah. It was huge. My brother was born there because they actually had a doctor there and they delivered babies there. So. I mean, it was, I mean, the town infrastructure is unbelievable. It's got a, a you would, it has a shooting range that used to be a ski hill. It's got a golf course right in the middle of town mm-hmm. that they keep up meticulously. There's a, an ice rink. There is a you know a small but a swimming an indoor swimming pool, um, the sewers, the roads, like the whole thing is in tremendous shape, and there's just mm-hmm. a vast amount of money poured into the place. Yeah. Yeah. There's theoretically, and I spent a lot of time kind of going over the numbers and hanging out with the town CEO and that. Technically speaking, there's probably 110 residents, like actual buildings that are occupied right now, but maybe only about uh, 60% of them are occupied full time. There's maybe something like 80 residences that are, that are occupied. There's a, a minimum of 170 empty residences right now, right. Um, and there and many of them have fallen down. But so it's got kind of a weird kind of aspect to it because you know two you know something like 60 percent maybe two thirds of the the housing units are empty. But I've actually spent a bunch of time at the mine too. So we went up to the mine once and have you have you been up there anytime? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the mine like so we were getting driven up there and they were talking about the tailings ponds and stuff. Uh, like at one point, it was 40% of the Yukon's GDP. Yeah. Uh, every half hour, 24 hours a day, there was a muffin truck heading, heading out to, yeah. uh, you know, loaded down. And so so I was in the mine. We were driving up the first time in October, and, you know, you're driving up, and it's just, it's beautiful, right? Those Anvil Mountains, and it's around, right around the, the corner of Mount Mai there. That's the mountain that was originally mined. And there's this beautiful long lake disappearing in the distance and this like stuff. And so we're talking, and like, I was like, well, where where's the tailing spawns at? The guy who was driving up was like a... That's the tailing spawn. Yeah. I was like, that's the fucking tailing spawn? Right. Like that thing, it's a kilometer wide, a yeah. kilometer deep, and nine kilometers long. It's just beautiful because it was all covered in snow, of course. Yeah. When we were up there in October, it's just disappearing in the distance around the corner. You're like, good Lord. Like what? Like that. And then and then as you drive it up for about a kilometer, it's this really nice escarpment beside you, beside the road. It's kind of like this, it's kind of like a little cliffy thing, you know, whatever. It's long. It's long. And, and that's the slag heap. Right. So the remediation plan, though, which hasn't happened, right? So the, right now they're spending somewhere between 30 and $40 million a year just to contain it all. So it's like a series of berms and dams and kind of control points and stuff like that. That's about 35 to $40 million a year they're spending right now just to, 
keep it in place. Just to contain it. And the, the remediation plan is supposed to start in 2023, and that's about a billion and a half dollar plan. The reason the stuff's bad is because in, in the world, there's like lead and zinc, like a mountain full of lead and zinc, which is just fine in its, in its, its non-disturbed state. But as soon as you get in there and start digging it up, the lead and the zinc both oxidize, and then any water that touches it and runs off is, is heavily acidic, and it's bad for everything. So humans and, and wildlife and, and, and vegetation alike. So the, basically somehow I got to control it. That's why all the controlling is going. But the remediation plan is just to take the slag heap and put it on top of the, the slurry pond, the tailings pond, and then plant over top of it. And I was like, that's not a remediation plan as far as I understand it. That's a, like a pilot up in one place plan. Right. Um, so, but that's all they got. There's actually nothing they can do. It's about a 15 to 20 year plan to move all the stuff over and to kind of control it and get it all back in a kind of place or whatever. But what I didn't know, and I just learned on this trip, the remediation is, is in perpetuity, actually. That will contain the most part of it, the tailings pond, but the pits, and I went into the pits, I went into both pits, there was three pits, and I went into two of them, and they're, you know, they look like volcanoes that are yeah. blown up or whatever, they're huge pits. Because they will keep filling with water as the rains come and whatever, and glacier melt and all that kind of stuff, basically every summer they just fill up uh, with water, they slowly fill up with water every year, and they just pump the water out. So they pump the water out and they basically put it in a, in, a, in a treatment plant, which is they just throw a bunch of lime in it to, to readjust the pH because it's super acidic. So they just throw a bunch of lime in it and then send it back out. But be, because there's always water, of course, flowing into the site, it will literally, unless there's new technology, which there will be sometime down the road, but until there's new technology, there, that site will never be remediated and will continue to cost us. One of the things that's really interesting to me and, and sort of somewhat unique about Pharaoh is that it's still there. What are they, what are they doing? Because normally, you know, the, a company town, when a company leaves town, everybody just leaves too. But it's very curious, right? Because to my mind, like, the, so there are all kinds of stuff. So part of the reason there were, there were people have been consulting me and trying to ask me and, like, then bring class is like, okay, like, what kind of ideas could we come up with to, to regenerate the town? And it's, you know, you can, it would take you five minutes on the back of the napkin to think all the things I thought of, um, which are, you know, and all the things they thought of, which are tourism, because it's technically a beautiful spot. I mean, aside from the gigantic toxic mine um, uh, and the, all the wildlife that disappeared from the mountain and all that stuff. Yeah. But there is, you know, it is hunting and there's fishing stuff and it, it is really... And like they have the, festivals. The lights are pretty. Uh, there's cranes and there's sheep and yeah. like it's... Um, so people thought that, but it's it's a tough sell because it's it's the middle of nowhere. I mean, Yukon's far enough away anyways. And, there, and you, if it was nice, but it's not nicer than anywhere else in Yukon, really. It's, and then people have talked about other things like maybe making it like a retirement village and all the ideas are, are problematic. It's like, well... And, and, but I think it's actually a deeper question than that, which is that there's actually like literally an existential question, which is why does that town exist? And, and the narratives that they're trying to build, right? So I, I was hanging out having coffee with an old timer guy and he's a great guy. I totally like the guy, but he basically was a distillation of what everybody's argument is. Well, God, it was just fantastic when times, you know, back in the seventies, like, it's like, you know, all oh, the mines, they treats us good. Oh, they treats us good. You know, they give us duck. They give us, they give us like steak. You can take food home. You know, I'm like, yeah, man, I like, I, I'm with you, man. It sounded like times are great. And like, I talked to a lot of people. I talked to all this, you know, all the council and all that. I talked to everybody about it. And they're all like, you know, God, it was, we raised our kids there. It was a wonderful time. It sounds like your parents had the same yeah. experience. <laughs> the town was booming, you know. The, the wages were fantastic. It was like, a, a, you know, a community, great community to raise children. And, and that's good. But nostalgia is not a reason to be. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a larger existential question. But that question, of course, is intimately bound up with the question of Ross. But basically, they're two little communities about the same size, bound up together, one small community absolutely overwhelmed with money and resources and support, and the other town in a, in a, in a shambles yeah. in many ways. And, and, and that's quoting uh, 
you know, friends of mine who live in Ross. Mm-hmm. Ross is, you know, Ross has got it's all, all kinds of virtues and all kinds of great shit happening there, but it's a town in deep trouble in all kinds of ways. The, the argument, the way I've been kind of thinking about it in lots of ways is that the Casca people have been there for forever. And the reason for them to be there is not in question. Nobody questions that. That's their land. It's difficult to come up with a narrative about why Pharaoh's there. Do you think it's the, because there's still federal money coming in? Well, see, that's even a more interesting problem because, mm. uh, and I think it represents, in fact, a lot of the conundrums, and I've written about this, and I'm sure I'll uh, get some blowback on this, is that it represents in a large respect the, the problem of the Yukon in general, which is that the Yukon of its $1.3 billion operating budget, approximately you know a billion of that comes from federal transfers. Mm-hmm. And that if you look at the budget of, and I spent a lot of time with the CAO looking at the budget of, of Faro, and you know, it depends how you count it, but somewhere between 75 and 90% of that budget is, is either YG or federal money, and the YG money is just federal money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so if you have a nostalgic reason to want, and you want to cling there, and you want to have a fierce pride about being in place and all that kind of stuff, that's great, but I'm paying for that. We're all paying for that. And I think that question is a larger question, actually, that represents uh, some kind of existential question for the Yukon. But in a bigger sense, I think it actually is right to the heart of the questions about Canadian sovereignty, which is that uh, we are uninvited guests on Indigenous territory. Our reason to be needs a better justification than, well, my parents were here. <laughs> and it's a trick, right? It's a trick when people start saying, like, well, why are you here? Not an unpointed question. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's a lot to say I'm here because, you know, because I make good money and lifestyle's good and you know what I mean? I've had the privilege to be uh, incredibly educated and supported so that I can swoop into this land that I'm not from and uh, reap all the benefits. Does Pharaoh and a lot of these mines land on First Nations land? It's um, it's, it's absolutely on Cascan First Nation. They call the, the mountain, it's called my mountain, is yeah. like the, the English language word for it or whatever, but it's called, the, what they called it in, in, in Cascadene was the mountain of everything. But basically that was where every, the families moved through there constantly and all over that mountain they hunted for, for caribou and they hunted for uh, whistler and they hunted for gopher and there was like families were moving through there for generations. From what I understand, that all that land was damaged and look what it's done to the people. Yeah. Oh, it's damaged. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Left them nothing. Yeah. And there's like huge, like what I've heard from a couple of people in the last couple of days is that just the, uh, not just the actual mountain, but then of course the disruption is repercussive through all that area, yeah. but just in terms of like wildlife migration and the movement of animals and stuff is, it's just really difficult. And so they have to move further and further away and hunt further and just it further disrupts, you know, which is already a, like a, a whole series of fractured traditions and, and relationships to the land that they're trying to recover. But then there's this giant thing in the way. And so it's really interesting is then is that one of the other things in that the, the, the current the current administration of the of Pharaoh, uh, their plan for the town is to fix up some of the houses, tear down the ones that can't be fixed up right now, and then resuscitate them and, and or sell them to, to individuals who might hang on to them. Probably not to move there, but probably to keep there because the the mine remediation program, which is gonna start Theoretically, it's going to start like in five years or something like that. Mm-hmm. That'll bring something like 75, somewhere between 75 and 200 workers into the area. And the idea is then that the, the fair will have the facilities to, to rent out to them and the town will be regenerated. And that, that'll, so that'll, that kind of influx will see the town through for another, you know, maybe 20 years as the mine gets remediated. And then after that, there's an incredible number of deposits further on that they're talking about then exploiting. Wow. 
Um, which is, you know, and, and yeah, and of course, the right thing I said uh, um, in the conversation, I was like, man, like, really? And they're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, we did stuff in the 60s and 70s that we would never do now. We would do it responsibly. I'm like, but they ha- have they? I mean, well, Yet? the evidence says no. no. Yeah. Um, and the evidence is actually that if you count, if you count correctly, the impacts of mining to my reckoning anyways, are actually deleterious to the, to the Yukon economy. They're actually, they're actually uneconomic. You know how many work in mines that are employing people are in the Yukon right now? One. It's yeah. Minto, but it's barely hanging on. Yeah. There's others that are in pre-process. There's all kinds of exploration. It's way more smoke and mirrors. And yeah, you read all the kind of stuff about how, like, the economic impacts and the multiplier effects and, this, and stuff. But, of course, then you don't factor in. You don't count, for example, rem- mine remediation. Which is exactly the case of the tar sands, which is you count only, and it's exactly the kind of particular kind of econometrics that are that are that are so blinding to people because you count one set of ads, but you don't count the the ills, you don't count the negatives, and so if you look at it, and I've I've done some work on the numbers, is that I, I actually think that mining to the Yukon has been a net negative and continues to be a net negative, even if you count very conservatively, yeah. and it's and and that's not to to say that like there are a tremendous number of people whose lives were like very positively affected by the Faro mine. Oh, absolutely. Um, those were those were good jobs, and uh, you know that was like ago. real duck and steak that people were eating, and those were families that got raised there, and those were really important jobs. Um, but I think economically speaking, just from a strictly let's measure this, it's actually a, like a, a negative impact. And of course, like so much of this, that there were tremendous profits uh, extracted from that, uh, very few of which were contributing to the Commonwealth of the Yukon, but went into private hands, whereby, of course, the debt, as soon as the, those companies go bankrupt, becomes socialized. And yet that continues to happen as our minds close. Yeah. One, one after the other. And there's actually some really interesting work done about the tar sands, because the, the, the science of global warming... Um, and I use the word global warming instead of climate change because I think it's actually much more unequivocal and much less, uh, uh, much less susceptible to obfuscations and denial. That's what's happening. Clim- the climate is changing, but it's happening because of global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we should talk about global warming. Uh, the science has actually been basically settled since the 1970s, and the numbers are really not obscure. It's what, what famously a guy called Timothy Morton calls a hyperobject, which is objects that are so large and distributed across time and space that they're difficult for everyday people to understand. And that's true in some ways. It's like it's just so kaleidoscopic, the effects of global warming and the imp- implications are so profound and so deep and so tenuous in so many ways that it's, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around. So many times we just go, I don't know, let somebody else like the UN or somebody deal with that. I, I, I don't know. I'll recycle, but I can't handle thinking about it. But in other ways, global warming is actually very, very simple. It's, it's just a, the, the math is, is, surprisingly, is surprisingly straightforward. Um, and there have been a number of studies that have been done to, to keep the, the temperature rise between beneath 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is really the, the, the agreed-upon limit upon which the global temperature can rise without deleterious effects to the way we live our lives currently, then it's really simple about how much carbon can be released in the atmosphere. And so then they've done another set of calculations, and they've been checked over so many times that it's basically agreed upon now, not just by the IPCC, but it's a generally agreed upon fact about which countries and which parts of the world need to do which to meet that target. And essentially what it boils down to is that Canada needs to, about 95% of our oil comes from the tar sands. And essentially Canada, we have to leave about 85% of that in the ground. Yeah, And that's just, those are basically unassailable numbers. They're maybe even too conservative. That's about it. If we want to, Canada wants to do its part to prevent global warming from really adversely affecting human life on the planet, about 85% of the tar sands got to stay in place. There's people can argue that because there's new kinds of sag deep kinds of stuff that are as opposed to the strip mining, and there's there's other kinds of processing that might affect it or whatever. But that's you can you can kind of argue around the edges. That's about it. 
And so a bunch of, there's actually a, a couple of things that have been done around that, but essentially uh, a former tar sands worker and his buddy who was a roofer uh, and employed in the, in the industry, just good working class guys who believe in climate change were like, okay, now what? Because there's just this huge industry of people that if you say shut down the tar sands and you're sitting in a like, nice office in Vancouver, that sounds good. <laughs> sure, shut them down. Uh, except that there's huge numbers of people whose lives have been unbelievably positively affected by those tar sands jobs, uh, including one of my one of my adopted daughters went up there and kind of had her life not going the way she wanted to go. And she was in her mid twenties, and she went up there and got a job working at the front desk of one of the uh, one of the camps, and made enough money and kind of spent enough time thinking about things that she it didn't take her long. It took about six months, but she uh, came back and went to nursing school, and she's. She's crushing nursing school, and it absolutely changed her life. Mm-hmm. And a whole bunch of her other friends that I know who went up there and worked and made money, and uh, money that they never would have made in any other place. And when you go to Fort Mac, it's, there, there's 100 different, identifiable, probably more, but at least 100 identifiable ethnic communities. It's unbelievably diverse when you go to Fort Mac. It's crazy. You go to, you go to the community center, which is like the, it's the biggest rec center in Canada. And it's like, you know, there's mothers with hijabs and their kids climbing on the rock wall and like Jamaican kids carrying their hockey bags in and like people from every corner of the world, you know, finding lives and money and resources that they, that they were unimaginable otherwise. And so to say just something like, oh, well, just shut down the tar sands. Okay, sure. But it's actually really irresponsible in a lot of ways. And it just doesn't resonate with people because they're like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> you know, well, yeah. Sh- shut down the, uh, you know, shut down the university and all you, uh, you know, constantly flying around to conferences and massive carbon footprint folks if you don't mind, while you're at it. Because I actually think there's like seems to be a direct correlation between how much people care about climate change or profess to and how much they fly. There seems to be a negative correlation there, honestly. Like, yeah. um, you know, people that, that claim to not give a shit about global warming mostly don't fly very much and their carbon footprint is kind of ironically usually much smaller. But so anyways, these two guys have, have begin to develop a plan. What they, what they, what they found is, is that you start thinking about shutting down the tar sands. You're like, okay, but there's actually an unbelievable size cleanup job to do. There's just like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of wells that are, that are untapped, that are just left alone, like, just like the Feral Mine, but on a smaller scale, where people you know, went bankrupt or you know, did some kind of exploratory work and then didn't come out, so they just walked off on it. And that, uh, interestingly, there's a direct correlation between folks that have technical skills working in the tar sands and the technical skills and experience that would be required to clean them up. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows anything about, better about cleaning it up than people who've been working out there. And so what they've come up with a plan, they began to work with the numbers, that, uh, I think, to a pretty sophisticated degree. But just enforcing existing legislation, making it so that companies have to clean up after themselves. There's actually about $100 billion of work sitting there, as what they figure. And that that work could employ literally the entire tar sands workforce, cleaning up the tar sands for at least a generation. And given that time, there would be time then to adjust to new clean technologies and to be able to think about a transition. Like literally, and it's actually, if if the government of Alberta and the federal government just enforced existing regulations on the books to enforce the companies cleaned up after themselves, which is of course exactly what did not happen in Faro. A series of people were not held to it. And there actually was legislation, and it's, it's complicated because when a country, company goes bankrupt, it's hard to go, and mm-hmm. there's actually protection for them. But if the Canadian government even enforced the bare number of regulations they had in place to protect against exactly this kind of walking off and environmental kind of hand-washing, there actually is the skill, and that skill that, you know, you think about the people who worked in that mine and all those people that are up there. So I spent, we, drove, we spent some of the afternoon driving around with an environmental engineer up there. And he was like, yeah, I just spend my, uh, my career cleaning up after other people's mess. 
So the idea that we could shut down the tire sands is a, is a bad idea, unless it comes with a plan that is actually, so I would suggest what it needs is a real class-based analysis. Yeah. I would say that that kind of ecological kind of thinking, which is fine, actually requires a class consciousness alongside it. And then I would suggest equally as in Pharaohs with the tar sands, it requires then that being subsumed within a decolonizing perspective. Mm-hmm. Because just like the like Pharaoh, which is on Casca Nation, the tar sands are on indigenous territory. Mm-hmm. In both cases then thinking through ecology has to has to be start with not just a class analysis, but thinking through the an ecology of land. And you can't think about land in Canada without thinking about about decolonization. Mm-hmm. So I think that when I start to, to loop back then, I think that the, when I've been sort of poking around a little bit, is that I think the actual existential question of Pharaoh, why are you here, has to start with uh, a decolonial perspective. And I think that might provide some kind of in into thinking that through on a, on a more significant basis. Do you see a connection between the state of the indigenous people in Pharaoh and Ross River and the state of the indigenous people in Fort Mac? That's interesting. Uh, so I spent some time, so part of this last book, we spent time in Lubicon territory, which is just to the west a little bit. Um, and there were some of the most sophisticated and kind of persistent opponents of the tar sands. And then I spent a lot of time south of town uh, on a reserve called Janvier, um, which is a, a, a Dene reserve. And it, very similarly, right, the, the social pathologies and the disconnections and the fracturing of community relationships is very similar in a lot of ways. And, and the, But also the problematics are bound up because there are people in Fort, Mac- Fort McKay, there are poor people in Fort Chip, there are poor people in Lubicon, there are people in John Vier who, who go work in the, in the go work for industry. And, you know, nobody's blaming them. But that's um, industry that's still existing. Right. Is it a predictive when we look at Pharaoh and Ross River and we look at Fort Mac? in terms of the conditions of the indigenous people. Because unless I'm incorrect, indigenous people from the Casca Nation worked at the Faro Mine. Well, in fact, they were the, uh, they were the first uh, the people who showed around Al Kulin. Because Al Kulin was just another prospector dragging his ass through the bush until a bunch of Dene people said, well, actually, you know, let's go look at it. So absolutely, but, but to a highly disproportionate right. extent of, of... In terms of pe- numbers. Yeah, I mean, achieving benefits and from, from the mines were it's not particularly significant. But as I mean, like I look at the condition of Ross River and I look at what's happening outside of Fort Mac in terms of the indigenous population. And uh, Ross River is unquestionably one of the towns in the Yukon where we're seeing the most damage of colonization. Like, of, is that something that you think is indicative of an industry town? Yeah, I, I think there's probably a correlation between large scale kind of industrial activity and and particular kinds of like uh, of degradation of community. Um, on the other hand, it, it provides something clearer and more tangible to to fight against. Right. It's something like okay, that thing needs to go, as opposed to in many other places where uh, colonization comes in a kind of a slippery, multi kind of faceted, sometimes here, sometimes there kind of way. But yeah, and and but I think that that part of it, and the part of the way I try to like to try to put it together is to think it through the kind of languages of extractionism which is a particular kind of worldview that tries to extract value wherever it sees it with little regard for the consequences. In, in traditional Marxist terms, people would call that exploitation. Mm-hmm. I think maybe extraction is a little bit, is, is, is actually a bit more accurate in some ways, right? And it's the exact same, and you can make this argument in, in all kinds of ways, right? And this is the kind of argument I was making actually to, to this, this old worker guy in, in Farrow, which is that you know the, the company cares about the environment 
about exactly as much as it cares for you, which is fuck all, <laughs> you know, that they will extract, I mean, in, in Marx's, Marx's language, it's surplus value, right? They will extract the surplus value from your body uh, via your labor to whatever extent to the, to the, that the law will provide and to which your body will hold up, right? Which is to say that they will extract surplus value, profit, from you and your labor. If you extend that into the environment, they will continue to extract whatever value is possible. And they will extract that from whatever population is in the way. And yeah. certainly the indigenous community can be extracted from in certain kinds of ways for, for guiding, for traditional knowledge that helps with mining and for labor, absolutely, and for all kinds of things. But the, the, the exploit, exploitation is extraction of value without, consi without consent and without uh, a care for the other person or the other entity's well-being. And that's the, pervasive, that's the pervasive thread, the ideological thread that informs both extraction from the natural world and extraction from human bodies. And so, sure, uh, indigenous people, by their very nature, are always in the way of development. Right. That, that in fact, if you look at the, the World Wildlife Fund's 200 most uh, endangered spots on Earth, 95% of them are indigenous territory, yeah. on existing indigenous territory. And that's not, a, that's not a secret, right? Is that indigenous people are always in the way of a particular kind of teleology of progress and development that is in direct conflict with many, um, perhaps maybe even all indigenous people's relationship with, with land and territory. And to my mind, is that the reason for the Yukon uh, has always been, and the reason for a billion dollars in federal transfers annually for you know just under forty thousand people, is that we're protecting Canadian sovereignty here. That's always that's always the go-to. It's gonna, yeah. and, and initially it was because the Ruskies coming over the you know we don't want the Red Commies coming over the pole or whatever. Um, but interestingly, in, the, in a, if you think about it in another sense in a post-Cold War sense, but particularly in a, in a decolonial sense, that money is actually protecting Canadian sovereignty, which is in direct violation of indigenous sovereignty. So in fact, actually, that billion dollars or that $26,000 per person per year is to here to enforce Canadian sovereignty and, to, and specifically to infringe on indigenous sovereignty. Do you believe it's Canadian sovereignty? I, I see it more as mining company sovereignty. I just think there's some kind of interesting, uh, interesting kinds of flips around the word of sovereignty. And in particular, when you talk about the Canadian, uh, the Canadian relationship to the Casca Nation, mm -hmm. um, for what I, the way I understand the Casca position, in many ways, and I, I would never, I, I don't know it well enough even to, to paraphrase it personally, but the way I'm interpreting it now, is that actually that their beef, they they perceive Pharaoh and the and the and the Yukon government to be essentially irrelevant. That the self, because the question often arises, and people often say, well, Ross's. In the state it is because it's in, it hasn't achieved a self-government uh, agreement with the Yukon government. Uh, it's still an Indian Act uh, you know, community. They can't make any decisions. They've got to flow all the municipal act flow through Ottawa. And that's the reason. And the Casca position is actually, no, we're not giving up any of our land for a no-bullshit agreement uh, that so many other nations you know, have decided to. And actually our beef is not the, the, the mine will go away eventually and the, the pharaoh will go away. And I'm sure some Casca people will help me figure this out and paraphrase this or state this in a better way, but the, the actual, their actual relationship is with the, with, the, with the Crown, with the Canadian government, to recover actually Casca territory. And mm -hmm. that, that's, the, that's the one and only goal. And the, they've been there forever, and they will be there, continue to be there, and that will continue to be their territory. And the Yukon government can pretend that it has sovereignty and that it has the capacity to make an agreement, but it doesn't. That's, and that's the Casca position, um, as far as I understand it. That's the deal, right? And that's why the Yukon government then can't perceive what the hell they're, they're doing. Why won't they? Why won't they talk to us? Why won't they? Like, why won't they negotiate with us? And because what you're offering is not what we want, right? And I and I guess I'm just trying to make a case. Is that the case on that? Is that I think it's actually like it will help 
for our settlers like us, it helps us answer the rot at the at the core of that existential question, right? Which I think is so we can talk about it in terms of is that if you start like even at one end of the kind of settler kind of trajectory of or the kaleidoscopic views of settler relationships to indigenous people, you got one end like you know heavily reactionary, right? You know, like terrible opinions of like, well, he's got to stop drinking and pull himself together and assimilate or whatever. Usually said from a drunk in a bar. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's funny. Um, uh, all the way to like nice liberal people who are like, well, we really care. Like, we're really like, sorry, we got like, what kind of money can we probably, what kind of like resources can we put? We have to, like, how can we do this? All of it still posits indigenous people is the problem. That we're the normal and we're the, like our teleological trajectory is, is right and good and normal and, and natural. And indigenous people are the problem. However we deal with it, like either we deal with it in a reactionary, awful way, as like, you know, those goddamn people, or in a super lovely kind of liberal, kind of caring, like generous way, it still posits indigenous people as the problem. And it strikes me as a particular kind of shift mm -hmm. to say, actually, problem. we're the problem and we have to figure that out, which is then, then, but I think to say that, uh, to, you know, approaching decolonization from whatever we can, it's ugly and it's hard and it's hurtful and you're like, I don't know what to do and I don't know where to go and I don't, like, what am I supposed to do and... Some of my best friends are indigenous people. And, you know, you're like, you're like I don't know what, how do, what the hell do I do? How do we deal with this shit? But if you flip it around and say, yeah, we're the problem, then that actually begins to, and I think why I'm so interested in Pharaoh, is that it, it, there, there's a cancer at, that, at the heart of that community, which is they don't actually have a reason to be. And thinking through decolonization, I think, can begin to answer that question in a real way. And in, in that way, the argument that I've been sort of playing around the edges with is that it's actually really good for us. Like, it's really good for us as settlers. It's not just, oh, we're going to do this for indigenous people. It's actually there's like a rot at the heart of, of our existence here in Canada that we have to answer, and it'll actually be really, really good for us, but just in a, in a, in a very visceral, everyday way, that it's, it's bad for you to, to not deal with that. And it'll actually be really beneficial to all of us. One of the things I enjoy about the Yukon is that because of the size of the population and how small it is here, we have the opportunity to make changes and see how those changes can be implemented before we take them out to a larger scale. And looking at something like Pharaoh, it's, it's like running tests on a, on a mouse in a lab. Like while the environmental impact there is obviously one of the most massive environmental impacts in the country, dealing with the, the Casca Nation there, it can inform the way we approach other nations mm -hmm. in other parts of the country because we're dealing with smaller numbers you know, so I see it as, as a, a litmus test that we need to pass. Right. And I think it's also true, I would just to add to that, I think that's correct, is that it's so stark there. It's just two little towns of like 350 people with this thing. And it's like, it's actually just stark and right there, which is maybe, maybe why I'm so intrigued by it. It scales up, the, not just metaphorically, but, but very specifically, so that it's actually, it's, it, the, the problems of Pharaoh or the problems of the Yukon are the problems of Canada. And what's your next step now? So, I mean, you've been asking questions, you've been looking into this. How do you move forward from here? What's your next step? I've got a good answer. The, the, the honest truth is I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. The normal thing I do is write a book. So that might be possible, but I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not 100% convinced, convinced I, I'm the person to do that. Um, so I'm not sure my next step's on that. And, and there's stories to be told there. I'm not sure how to tell them exactly and, and who should tell them in what way. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm really grateful that you're up here doing this because as somebody that lives in the Yukon, I find that I am somewhat apathetic sometimes to the plight of the communities and what's going on. Because in my mind, 
Pharaoh has always been kind of fucked up, and we know that the mine has been bad, and Ross River is always a bit damaged. And, you know, we, we know these things about these communities. It's abstract. It's not something I actually touch often because I live in Whitehorse, and I don't leave Whitehorse and go to Pelly to see, hey, how's it going in Pelly? How are you folks doing here? I go to Pelly to go, oh, Pelly's nice, and I hang out there for a couple of days and take advantage of it, like every other white person that's ever walked in there. And then I come back to Whitehorse, and I go back to Whitehorse things. So, I mean, I'm personally, I'm very grateful that you're here doing this work because it's actually teaching me a lot about Pharaoh, about Ross River, and about the Yukon, where I purportedly was born and live. But it takes somebody sometimes to step outside of this to be able to actually see, I think, what's going on. And I think a lot of us as Yukoners have lost that vision. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you had fun and maybe even learned something. The Horse is brought to you by Molotov and Brick Tattoos and J.L. Hamilton Productions. Until next time, remember to be kind to yourself and to others.